University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. This last temptation escaping death, and he embraces the call God had for him. Now, certainly, and I need you to hear me say this, this is not how the story goes in the scriptures. Though, again, that wasn't really their intention. In reflecting on Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, which is, of course, part of the scriptures, and it's the text we'll look at in just a minute, The film helps us imagine Jesus' human struggle out there in the desert and on the cross. It's a story, this Lenten story that we'll read, that is read very often during this season of the the church calendar. Our 40-day Lenten journey is modeled on Jesus' journey of temptation, those 40 days and nights out in the wilderness. Jesus joins in a long lineage of faithful prophets and teachers who had honest struggles with their call. You may have seen the Scorsese film and disliked it, and that's perfectly fine. But I mention it only to help us open our imaginations today as we encounter this story of Jesus' temptations in the Gospel of Luke which is likely very familiar to us. Hear this word, then, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus returned from the Jordan River, where he had been baptized, full of the Holy Spirit. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterward Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, Since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, It is written, People won't live only by bread. Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Finally, the devil brought him into Jerusalem And stood him at the highest point of the temple. And he said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. And Jesus answered, It's been said, don't test the Lord your God. And after finishing every temptation... The devil departed from him until the next opportunity. 
See, at the heart of this story, I think, is a very familiar struggle. One of the most basic and perhaps primal struggles in the human experience. It's the struggle of temptation to want something that we know we shouldn't have. We can all probably name something that we've been tempted by even this morning. Maybe an extra 20 minutes of sleep, even though we really needed to get out of bed. Or the donuts we know we shouldn't have. Or if you had one, maybe a second one. We're constantly bombarded in life by things that tempt us, that pull us away from things that we know are better. And Jesus, in his full humanity, was not immune to that struggle either. Just before this story in the Gospel of Luke, we read about Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River and how the Spirit of God descended upon him and filled him and named him for this special ministry to which he was called as Messiah. But then it seems almost before he even comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness, a place of trial, a place of solitude and wrestling. In the Greek, which this text was first written down in, we have the sense that the Spirit drags Jesus there. This isn't a nice, peaceful saunter through the hillside, but a difficult journey of struggle. The way Luke frames Jesus' story, he doesn't rush off after his baptism to begin teaching and healing and getting on with the work that he was called to do. Instead, he's led, dragged, by God's Spirit, into the wilderness, it seems to first answer this question. What kind of Messiah would he be? Again, we read this passage at the beginning of Lent, or the second Sunday of Lent as it happens this year. Our own journey into the wilderness, into a time of reflection and questions and maybe wrestling, we read this because we are called to ask similar questions of ourselves. We might call ourselves disciples, but take that a little bit deeper and ask what kind of disciples will we be? How might we face up to the various temptations and challenges that life throws our way? This devil, by the way, or diabolo, in Greek, just means an accuser or a tempter. This is, of course, not the traditional red horns and pitchfork that we might see in popular culture, but maybe just a voice in Jesus' own mind as he struggles to hear and listen for God's voice out there in the desert. And like any real temptation, it doesn't seem that Jesus is faced with choosing between good or evil. He's really faced with choosing between good or better. Maybe good or best. And isn't that often how temptations work in our lives? 
real temptations in life are often for things that look like they might be good for us. Jesus, it's been 40 days since you've eaten anything. You need to eat. What good is it if you starve yourself to death out here and never get a chance to do any good for anyone? Just turn those stones into bread and give yourself some nourishment. Of course, Jesus says, well, one doesn't live by bread alone, but there's something deeper that I'm after. Something much deeper than any food could possibly satisfy. If we aren't careful, things like this can be quite alluring. Sometimes it's material things. Sometimes it's material things that could be used for good. Because while this devil, I think, might be tempting Jesus' own appetite, I mean, I've never gone without food for 40 days, but I imagine he'd be pretty hungry. I think it's possible that the temptation for Jesus might also be to turn those stones into bread for others. There are plenty of hungry people around him, and in a few chapters, we'll read the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. How much good he could do if he just listened to that voice that said, you have the power to make it all better for them. You don't need to wait on God. Just go ahead and turn those stones into bread yourself. And as Jesus wrestles with what kind of Messiah he will be, He's faced with whether he will do things God's way or his own. Whether he will force the stones around him into things they were never intended to be. Or whether he'll trust that God will lead him and provide a way for him. Like Israel during their 40 years in the wilderness. Like Elijah in his 40 days, which we heard about last week. Jesus is faced here with trusting that there might be a better way than all the ways that have been tried before. The Roman Empire, under whose rule Jesus lives, and whose shadow lurks in the background of the Gospels, well, they could easily have provided bread to feed hungry bellies. But Jesus' task is not to be the kind of Messiah that would operate like the Roman Empire, but to be God's Messiah, who operates by different rules, who gives more than just bread, but who gives the very word of God that would transform hearts and lives. See, the task for Jesus wasn't just to simply change the outward conditions of people's lives, though that was extremely important, but to change the very lives themselves. We might ask a similar question for us. Is the good that we do in the world lasting? Or is it sometimes simply a band-aid, a temporary fix, perhaps which covers the symptoms but doesn't really solve the deeper issues? We're continuing in the story. This devil, again, perhaps in Jesus' own mind tries another tactic. He's led up to a high place where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. 
Jesus, all of this is mine to give, and you can have it all if you'll just worship me. Just acknowledge that the power belongs with me, and it's yours. I wonder if Jesus thought about it, even for just a second. Just like with the, the stones and the bread, do you think Jesus wondered how much good he could do in the world if he had power over all the kingdoms? With that kind of power, you could transform lives. You could make things so much better for everyone, make sure everyone had enough food, fair wages. You could do away with the rule of the Roman Empire and all of its violence and oppression. But, of course, it was too good to be true because it required a compromise. A temptation to compromise our core values and ethics is a really strong one sometimes. I know I've faced such temptations in my life. Maybe you have, too. Maybe there was an opportunity at work where you had the chance to get the promotion, the raise that would help you provide more for your family or to have more to help those in need. And sincerely, you would have used it for that. But it required something of you. An ethical compromise that you weren't sure you could make. What good is it to anyone to gain the whole world and yet lose their very soul in the process? Jesus teaches this in a couple more chapters. But it's at the heart, I think, of this second temptation for Jesus, and maybe many for us. What good is it to gain the power of position, authority, to gain the ear of unethical political leaders, perhaps, in order to get things done? Even good things. Jesus seems to understand here, and he teaches elsewhere, that to wield power over others is dangerous, even if you really want to use it for good. You all know that one of my absolute favorite stories of all time is The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. In the early part of that story, Frodo, an unassuming hobbit, is given the task of taking this one ring of power created by the dark lord Sauron and to destroy it, to make sure that the dark lord would never get his hands on it again. But Frodo is frightened, and he tries to give the ring to his mentor, Gandalf, the wizard, a powerful and wise character who is objectively better equipped to handle the task. And those of you that have seen the movies remember this scene very well. Gandalf replies, don't tempt me, Frodo. Understand that I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. Those powers and authorities that the world around us might offer are dangerous. And to wield them requires a reverence of them that borders on worship. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Those ways of the Roman Empire, of Caesar, 
We could name countless other examples. They've been tried before. I don't think any of them have really solved the deep issues of our world. Jesus says, I will choose instead to worship God. He decides to be the kind of Messiah that holds true to his core, that wields peace rather than the sword, that does things God's way, even if it might not seem to be the most powerful or efficient. That's the kind of Messiah Jesus chooses to be in this moment. So what kind of disciples will we be? Finally, this devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, up to the pinnacle of the temple, and says, fine, Jesus, you are right to worship God. And the scriptures say that God will protect you, that God will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that they will not dash your foot against a stone. That's a direct quote from the Psalms, by the way. And as an aside, I think it's easy to see how one could even be tempted to use scripture for harm. So this devil says, why don't you just go ahead and throw yourself down from here? Let God save you. Show all of these people that you're the Messiah so that they will believe in you. There's a bit of foreshadowing here, of course, to when Jesus will hang on the cross and those crucifying him and even the criminal next to him will say, aren't you the Messiah? Call out to God and save yourself. Surely there is an easier way. Jesus replies that it's also written, don't put God to the test. Cheap tricks are not what Jesus is about. And maybe there was a real temptation to show all of the people the power of God, what harm would that do? Wouldn't that be easier or more efficient? Wouldn't it be better to give the people something to be excited about? To at least get them in the door so that then they could hear his message and they would follow him? That kind of superficial excitement, though, doesn't last. Again, what kind of Messiah would Jesus be? Would he be the kind of Messiah that would offer the same superficial excitement that people could get anywhere else? Or is there something deeper and more meaningful that he was offering? We would do well, I think, to not allow ourselves to be caught up in the allure of entertainment. Simply offering people something to be excited about, some fun. But... Maybe there are deeper things that we could offer those around us. Would we be content to simply wow people to get them in the door? Or can we focus on offering real relationship, compassion, meeting the very real needs that people have, which they may not have met anywhere else? As Tanya said earlier, I think we do that very well here at UBC. And it's encouraging to see all of the ways that we serve and love our community around us. But again, what kind of disciples will we be? 
this season of Lent offers us an opportunity to go deeper, to ask some tough questions. But to be clear, this isn't meant to be a time of punishing ourselves or needlessly suffering. The end of the road of this season of Lent is the celebration of Easter, when we find that God can bring new life even out of things that are dead. To that I say, thank God. Thank God that Jesus has gone before us to show us a way in this human struggle. Thank God that Jesus can show us the way in our wilderness. This morning for a time of reflection, we enter into communion together through a symbolic meal. Jesus calls us and leads us through the wilderness, inviting us not to force the stones in our lives into bread that can't satisfy, but to eat this meal, the bread of life that is given to us. Jesus calls all of us, all who were made in God's own image, all who breathe the breath of God's spirit. He calls us all to this table, to the meal that nourishes and binds us together. On that night, when Jesus was betrayed, he gave bread and wine to his disciples. They had had this meal together before, but this time was different. The very next day, Jesus would give up his own life. But his spirit would live on through the work of his friends. And indeed, even today, his spirit lives on in us and through our work in the world. But at this meal, Jesus took a loaf of bread. And he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Take this and share it amongst yourselves. May this meal give us encouragement in our Lenten journeys. May it give us strength for the work that God calls us to do.